What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Um, just a reminder, if you're wanting to support the show for no specific reason, you can find uh, the link below in the description of this episode. That just kind of helps with growing the audience and advertising, things like that, just making the show a better overall experience as well. Um, and don't forget to get our heads out of the sound, guys, and kind of understand what's going on around us. There are a lot of things that happen next door um, and in the cities next to us and even in our current cities that we just are oblivious to. And that kind of makes us complacent and, and kind of in a bubble that may or may not be healthy. Um, so just be aware of what's truly going on around us, guys. So today's episode of Podmosh is Kimberly Walker. She is one of the death investigators for our area. It's kind of interesting because the conversation didn't really go how I was expecting that, but it's kind of how is is what I kind of like, Uh, kind of flowing with where the conversation leads, and that's what happened this in this instance. This one led to her sharing extensively about her current struggle as a recovering alcoholic. She was very vulnerable, vulnerable with what she's gone through recently and some of what she's learned in the process. And I definitely learned a lot in this episode, and I hope you all enjoyed as much as I did. you know, I kind of had her on to talk about her experience as a former paramedic and EMT and then her current time as a death investigator. And it didn't really go how I planned or at all. And uh, she really just kind of poured her heart out. So uh, anyway, guys, anyways, guys, I hope you guys enjoy. No, I don't know anything. Check your mic. Hello. That'll work for you. I think can so. Can you hear yourself? I can hear myself. Cool. Well, Kim, thank you so much for get coming on the show. I well, appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Caleb. Um, you have quite the story. Am I right? A little bit. A little bit? A little bit. So let's start from kind of how we first met. We first met at JPS, right? Yes. We met at JPS in 2015 is when I started at JPS. How long were you there? Uh, almost two years. Okay. What did you do before that? I worked at CareFlight as an EMT, and I met Denise which you had her oh. on your show a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I met Denise at CareFlight briefly. I didn't know that. She, yeah, she was in orientation, and then they weren't willing to work with her and her husband's schedule. Oh, uh, okay. And so she got an offer for JPS the next week, and she went to JPS. Okay. So I knew Denise from there, and then I ran into her at the post office one day in Keller. Hmm. And she encouraged me to apply for like the third time. At JPS? At JPS, yeah. yes. And I got the job that time. And you weren't, you weren't really tracking on the whole healthcare field for a while. You were actually going aviation for a while, weren't you? Yes. So my senior year of high school, well, a little backstory. My dad um, has a commercial pilot's license. And when I was in middle school, he decided to finish up his private pilot training and kind of continue further. Um, and I got to go with him to the airport to watch him solo. And he took me up there and I stood on the ground with his flight instructor and, you know, watched him go around the traffic pattern a Mm -hmm. few times. And um, since then, I was like, well, this is something I want to do. And um, fly. Well, yes, fly and um, not stand on the ground and watch him go around the traffic (laughs) pattern. So um, my senior year of high school, I had enough credits to technically graduate early, but my school wouldn't let us do that. So I, of course, turned 18 in October and decided I knew everything and told my parents I was going to drop out of high school and get a GED and do all of these things. And my dad basically bribed me and said, I'll let you get your private pilot's license if you'll stay in high school and graduate with your class. I was like, fine, I guess I can make that work. (laughs) So um, I got my private pilot's license the day before I graduated from high school. 
And then um, went to college for one semester for aerospace engineering. Decided I really didn't enjoy the college environment. Why? um, Well, at the time, I didn't know this, but I had... I have a really bad ADHD and it makes like focusing in classes that I am not interested in, uh, difficult. Shoot. You don't even have to have ADHD to, to well, do yeah. that. Cause I, I feel you. I don't yes. have it, but it, it, like I'm taking class right now. I'm, I'm bored out of my mind and it's really hard yes. to focus. Yes. And I, I'm one of those people that like, if you show me something one or two times, I'm usually pretty good. I don't, I don't need a whole lot of like repetitive homework assignments yeah. and you know that's why I liked math so much because I could just work on the I math I hate math oh my god sorry why do you I'm, like math because I'm really good at it I know I know it's okay y'all can all sigh out in radio land but yeah no this isn't radio sorry, sorry. podcast <laughs> land podcast Spotify, land Spotify iTunes whatever whatever did you uh did you listen you probably didn't uh Rick Calverly he's he's a CNC manufacturer he's a the director of education at Lincoln college for their manufacturing program, actually for all of education. And he's one of those guys who like, he's that good at math. Like you just say something, say a number, he'll just do it. So I did it on the show. I threw a oh. random number. He was like, Oh, it's a, that's actually an odd number. 43.05. So I was like, golly, he's one of those type of guys. Are you like that? No, I'm not. I'm not that good, but oh, I can, man. I can do pre-cal and calculus pretty easy. That's disgusting. Continue. Okay. Um, so <laughs> Let's move on from the most hated subject in school. Yeah. Um, so I went ahead and started flying. And then when I graduated um, from high school, I went and did a semester of just kind of basic courses down at UTSA in San Antonio with the anticipation of transferring to UT Austin for aerospace engineering. Um, so what, what was, was the aerospace engineering portion just because of you flying or did you actually want to go like full NASA because that's a pretty common um, degree for NASA, right? Yes. And I, at the time, I mean, that was 10, at least 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, at the time, I thought I was going to go be an aerospace engineer for NASA. Um, but that was kind of the end of the space shuttle program. And there was just a whole lot of uncertainty with that. And then I realized how much school it actually was. <laughs> yeah. And how many classes I would have to take before I got to the fun stuff. Mm. Like if they would have just thrown me into your like aerodynamics classes, I would have had a lot more fun. So um, I moved back in with my parents. They had moved from Abilene to Waco at this point. And um, my dad was working for a TV station in uh, Waco. And um, TSTC in Waco had an aviation science program that they kind of joined with Baylor And, um, I ended up getting my instrument rating there and went and did time building out in Florida for my multi-engine commercial. Did you actually get that done? I did. That's awesome. So I have, that's awesome. I have multi-commercial with instrument privileges, which to those who fly out there, you you know what I'm talking about. Basically I can fly big planes with two engines. (laughs) Um, and what's your favorite right now? Do you, do you still fly? No. Okay. I haven't, I haven't flown, I haven't logged a flight since 2012. Yeah. It's been a while for me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, I met my ex-husband, um, in flight school in Waco. He was one of the flight instructors, not my flight instructor. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Clarification there. (laughs) Um, and, uh, about two weeks after we started dating, I bounced to go to Florida and I was like, well, if you're still here when I get back, I guess 
that works out. <laughs> he wasted a lot of flight miles to come and see me and it's vice versa. logging time, right? Yeah. I'm, well, no, no, no. <laughs> At this point, he was going to the airlines at the same time as okay. I was going to Florida. So okay. he worked for um, American Eagle, which is now Envoy, mm. little puddle mm-hmm. jumper type thing. Um, so when I finished up all of my flight ratings, I was, I just turned 20 and the FAA had just passed new regulation that you had to have 1500 hours and be 23 to fly at an airline. Mm-hmm. So the initial thought was like, if you can get in before it took effect, you would be grandfathered in and you're safe. Well, quickly realized with a lot of my friends that were about the same age, um, they were getting moved into the training department because they were no longer old enough to fly the aircraft, but they were qualified enough to teach everybody else who was a few years older how to fly. So there was a lot of like weird anomalies Mm. with that. And um, I had to figure out something to do. Mm. So my brother was a volunteer firefighter (laughs) and they paid for his EMT school. And, you know, I am definitely the smarter sibling of the two. So I, uh, I was like, well, Brian can do this. I can be an EMT. Duh. So it was uh, 500 bucks and <laughs> six months of my life. And I can make that babysitting. And they let you pay it out over the course of, I didn't even have to tell anybody I was going to do it. Because at this point I had moved back to help my parents out with their radio station in Marble Falls. My, my dad gets bored easily and kind of buys radio stations and flips <laughs> them and does things. Um, That's kind of a niche. Yeah. Some, some people flip houses. My dad flips radio stations. <laughs> so, um, I ended up working for my parents, went to EMT school, babysat a lot. Um, Brian was making, that's my brother. He was making $11 an hour as an EMT. Mm, and I was, right. I was like, wow, that is like the most money I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> uh, mostly because my parents don't pay me to work for them. So I've never <laughs> seen any money from them. Uh, but I went and did not have any anticipation of staying and really kind of got into healthcare for all the wrong reasons. Uh, cause I needed a job mm-hmm. and usually people burn out pretty quick when they do it for money because you quickly learn that it's not, it's a, it's a job that does not pay super well. No. And you, you get worked hard. Mm-hmm. So, so you were at CareFlight for how long? Um, I got hired in 2013. Okay. September of 2013. And I left in July of 2015. Okay. And 2015 is when you came to JPS? To JPS. Yes. Okay. So I was an EMT there. Um, Kind of the same as, as, you know, Brad and I ended up, Brad's my ex-husband. When Brad and I got married. Um, what, year, I, what, year did you, what year did y'all get married? 2013. Okay. So same time as. Same time. Um, I, we got married in May. I graduated from EMT school in June, took my national registry the next day, and then got hired at CareFlight in July. Mm-hmm. Or, well, got hired at CareFlight in September. I started mm-hmm. in September. I interviewed July, August. Um, but the whole plan was that I was either A, going to work until we had enough money. And we had just bought a house right before we got married. So I was going to work until I had enough money to start flying again or work until it was time to have babies and be a stay at home mom, <laughs> which you laugh cause uh, you know me now and that's not, that's not where we are. So, um, how, how did that kind of, because was that a hard thing to kind of have to 
Because you're, you're not there right now. I'm not. And is that something you kind of had to grieve over or is that a dream of yours or you just kind of not? No. Okay. So 2014, um, December, November, November of 2014, I had surgery and, um, I had, I'd been part of a clinical trial for, um, a Latvian procedure quite a few years before 2014. I don't remember the exact year. Um, and it ended up having a lot of problems with it as most people do. Um, and so we finally got into a place where we had met our deductible for the year and it was time for me to just go ahead and have it removed and everything was going to be great, you know, on the path to momming things. Mm -hmm. Um, long story short, I, um, had a whole bunch of complications and the surgeon that I initially picked, um, perforated my stomach and, um, we didn't know for five days. So I was very, very sick. Uh, I, I ended up getting a new surgeon, getting transferred to a new hospital. I was on a ventilator for 11 days. Um, and statistically, I'm a big science number statistics person. I should not be here. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have been dead more than once looking at all the whole course of events. I spent six weeks in the hospital uh, and one week in physical therapy rehab. And then I was out of work for almost six months. Mm. Um, did that mess with y'all's chances of having a baby at all or it definitely put things into a perspective of if I'm still here, then maybe my purpose isn't to just be a stay at home Mm -hmm. mom, which that isn't, I mean, if that's what you want to do yeah, and that's what you feel like you're led to do, go for it. Mm. My mom was a stay at home mom and she did amazing at it. And I just, I think I was doing it because that's what people, I grew up in Abilene. And so people got married really young Mm -hmm. and had babies really young. And, you know, moms were nurses, teachers, worked at the bank until they got pregnant and then they stayed at home. And then, you know, it was just, that's what, that's what they did. And so that was kind of like a wake up call. Maybe this isn't for you. Yes. Why? Um, I'm not, I'm not dumb. And after all of the things that had happened, I was like, it would be a, a waste for me to not go back to school. So I really thought I was going to go into nursing or whatever. And I was, I was actually slotted to start paramedic school um, the beginning of December of 2014. Uh, but I was on a ventilator the day that paramedic school started. So I, I missed my first day. That's um, a terrible excuse. I know, right? And you know what? That is a terrible excuse. And they still wouldn't give me my deposit back. So <laughs> I know they're like, this is a non-refundable. De- they meant non-refundable. Oh I was gosh. literally dying and they would not refund. So I ended up having to go a year later, but <laughs> it was fine. Um, I had another, I had another round of surgery, uh, about nine months after that, um, to kind of fix everything that was messed up. It, my surgeon that got me transferred to the new hospital, uh, did an amazing job of keeping me alive, mm. but there were some issues. I had a lot of adhesions and scar tissue and whatnot. And, uh, we knew that it was kind of a ticking time bomb, so to speak, before he had to go back in and clean up all of the adhesions. So um, this was actually fairly recent before you started JPS. No, it was oh. during JPS. So I, I worked July oh. until September, I guess. And, uh, 
started having really bad acid reflux and went for an like a upper GI after what I was working nights at the time and went for like an upper GI EGD type deal. And they sent me straight to emergent surgery in October. So how did I not know about this? Hmm. Uh, probably cause I was working nights and I hadn't moved over to days Maybe. yet. Cause I didn't really spend a whole lot of time getting to know the day shift people. Mm-hmm. It was a busy time. Yeah. It was a busy yeah. time of year and a busy yeah. time to come in. I think my first shift at JPS, it was like, Okay, well, we're shortening the orientation period, so mm-hmm. good luck. Mm-hmm. And then my first night, I ended up in yellow all by myself, not knowing yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. So um, had surgery again, um, ended up with a ruptured spleen and part of my pancreas gone. And, uh, so just a few surgeries, just a few nicks, just a few yeah. life-threatening calls, you know, not too bad. So <laughs> at, at this point, I've really decided childbearing is probably not a good idea for me just because um, it's a risk. And I don't know what's connected to what. We didn't know my stomach was adhesed to my spleen until we went to move my stomach. And, and your spleen went with it. Spleen went with it. Right. <laughs> um, so I. Was there a reason for all that? Like it was besides the lap band? No, well, the, the perforation from like the gastric perforation, all of like the digestive juices and stuff kind of Mm. broke down all the tissue around it. And then he put in a feeding tube in my intestine, the first, first surgeon did. Um, and that also had a lot of complications. And so I ended up with a bowel perf at that point too. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Tons of fun. And as a newly married couple, with not a whole lot at stake if you um, decide that y'all are uh, different people than when you got married. We didn't have any kids. The house was technically in his name. We didn't have anything together. Um, we just kind of grew up and apart different. You change after life-altering, you know, circumstances. And... Uh, just kind of realized that what I thought I wanted was very different than what I did want. And what he thought he wanted was very different than what I wanted. So, Mm. uh, we ended up getting divorced. Was that kind of like a mutual thing or it was, Oh yeah. It was super civil. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody goes through a divorce and isn't heartbroken Mm -hmm. afterwards. I mean, it was hard. He was the first like real boyfriend I had had and, you know. So you all married for like two years? Uh, three. Three years. Because it, we, it took, we ended up going past our third anniversary while our divorce was in progress. We didn't have any kids and there was no reason for them to speed up the process. Mm-hmm. So it took eight or nine months. So the divorce was, was while you're going through all the surgery stuff? It was the year after. so okay. And that's whenever you went back on day shift. Yeah. 2016, I had um, decided to go to paramedic school mostly because I knew Brad and I were not going to be together anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how people survive on EMT pay, but <laughs> my quality of life I was accustomed to was not going to survive <laughs> on EMT pay. Um, props to those who can because I don't know how. A lot uh, of overtime. Yeah. Overtime and budgeting. Mm-hmm. Things that I am not good at. <laughs> 
So, well, I'm actually having a financial advisor on, so this would be a great okay. time for you to hear what he has to say. Yay! <laughs> so, uh, I went to paramedic school, finished paramedic school in August. My divorce was final in August, but yeah, that that was when I had switched over to days. Was when I was in paramedic school. That's a lot. That is a lot to handle at one time. Yeah. How did you, or did you not? Not well. Okay. We'll get there. So, um, I left, I started dating someone at JPS at the very end of that year. And, um, there was a bright new shiny kind of sketchy place that opened up that's no longer in business. So it doesn't matter, (laughs) but they were offering me really good money, uh, to work as a paramedic in the ER and, uh, basically watch Netflix on my phone all night. (laughs) So, I mean... Can't I went, pass that up. I, yeah, I went where the money went, and my relationship with my ex-boyfriend went well, and you know, and things were great for a while. And I went back to school because I really thought at this point I was going to go be a doctor. And I know you and I had talked about that mm-hmm. um, quite a bit. Quite a bit. We talked about flying and being doctors. Mm-hmm. That was that was about the extent of our <laughs> CT hall conversations um, between full rests. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, I, um, I went to school for a semester. The hospital wasn't doing super great. My what kind of, just out of curiosity, what kind of, uh, jumped you off of the pre-med route? Uh, I broke up with my boyfriend at the time. And at this point I had to be fully self-sufficient all mm. on my own. And I had never done that because when Brad and I broke up or got divorced, I moved in with my parents And then uh, I lived with my parents and my ex-boyfriend. I ended up moving in with him when I started school. And then we broke up and I had to be on my own. My parents had moved to a different city at this point to uh, start a radio station out in Graham. Mm. And they weren't close enough for me to just kind of wiggle my way back (laughs) in there. Um, So... It was, just, it was just too Trying, much of the time. It was to be too able to much. Go. It yeah. was it was too much, yeah. and the hospital wasn't doing super great. So I went ahead and jumped ship and went back to CareFlight as a paramedic, and really kind of fully submerged myself into kind of the critical care medic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I did transfers out of Stephenville for. Did a while. Did you ever like have, like spend time to just process all the stuff that was going on? Because that's a lot. No. I thought I was fine. And um, I wasn't really much of a uh, drinker because my ex-husband didn't drink a whole lot until I got to paramedic school and started hanging out with all the firefighters. I blame them. All of them. <laughs> no, it's it's kind of an issue in healthcare oh, yeah, in general. Time. I mean... Um, Which a lot of people don't want to talk about it. They don't oh, want to put the emphasis on it. Nobody you know? wants to talk about it. And you when you surround yourself with a whole bunch of people who go and drink after shift because y'all are all going to drink after shift, it looks normal. Um, but I apparently didn't handle my drinking very well either. So Um, what's not in your opinion, what's not normal about everybody coming together and drinking after shift? I think it's, it's one of those things that when you, When I started, I don't think I had a problem drinking after shift. I think it was just a lot of like drinking in excess after shift 
and then going home and sleeping for a little while and then coming back, you know, like, Mm -hmm. especially like working nights and trying to like juggle social life and whatnot. It, I think the amount I was drinking and how frequently I was drinking, which really working on the ambulance, I had, I worked 24, 36 hour shifts and on my days off that, yeah, I'd go and have drinks. And I think kind of when it crossed over into, I was drinking alone at home because I could, and you know, I'm just making all this money doing overtime and I don't want to leave the house, but nobody's here. So Mm. what does it matter? Um, and then I, I switched over from the transfer side to the 911 side and started feeling way responsible for other people's, um, emergencies it, that people always say, you know, it's not your emergency, but I felt very responsible for the fact that I could or couldn't do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's huge. Cause that's, that's even how I felt when I first started on the ambulance. Like you, you feel like if, it, if you or your partner can't fix the issue, save the person, it's on you bottom line. Right. And, and that was, a, that was a weird change going from the, the streets to the JPS. Cause you know, you're working alongside doctors and nurses who oh, have yeah, it's their responsibility. Their responsibility. It still messes with your head, but it's but not it's like, not like it's not like yeah, I am the not person. Primary. Who, and I was working out um in rural EMS where it would take an hour to so get people are real effed up when you get there. It would take an hour to get from hospital, yeah. like from the scene to a hospital. Yeah. And if helicopters weren't flying, mm-hmm. that's a long time. And I just I had some issues and really was kind of drinking to the point of unmanageability. And, you know, never like drinking on the job or anything, but it was getting to the point that it was either going to get to the, like, it was going to get to the point that I was going to get in trouble or I had to just go ahead and fess up and say, Hey, I have a problem. And so what kind of, what kind of led to that, that gradual increase? Was it because like the history and then you take on another role as being a primary medic on scene and then, you know, there's not really a whole break between all your, your life catastrophes. Right. I think I just didn't process everything and didn't work through all of my stuff. It was Mm like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I got this. I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, no, I'm not upset. I, I got this. And was there any type of, uh, uh, backup or awareness at care flight or any other nine, but what were, as a primary, where were you working? Was it care flight? I was at care flight. Okay. Yeah. So primary medic, um, at care flight, was there any type of uh, debriefings that they would do on a regular basis to help you process things or not really. And I don't, there was, sorry, one second. (coughs) There was only, um, one call that really kind of messed with my head. And that was after I had already admitted that I had had a, I went on vacation, long story short here. I went on vacation in July of 2019 and this was the first time I ever went on a vacation in what? the six years prior. Uh, like, like put in a PTO request That's and went crazy. on vacation. Um, it actually got approved. I was shocked. <laughs> so I went on vacation to South Padre. I don't really like the beach a lot. I drank the entire week, came back. I still had another week off. Cause I put in two weeks of vacation. Why not? I got approved and kind of drank at home at the pool for the week 
after I got back and then it was time for me to go back to work and I thought I was just really hungover and my hangover got worse and I was withdrawing from alcohol to go back to work. What did that feel like? Um, I was very shaky, irritable, just, you know, you know how you wake up, hang up, wake up hungover or whatever, and you just feel like crap and, you know, you eat some carby food and drink some Gatorade and you're all better. No, mm. it just got worse throughout the day. Um, called out of work for the next couple of days, went and saw my doctor. Uh, she was pretty insistent that I didn't really have it. Like she didn't want to label me an alcoholic, uh, from the get go. And, you know, we messed with some medications and started stuff for, you know, maybe I'm just depressed. What maybe. kind of medications? Antidepressants. Oh, okay. Just maybe I'm depressed. So talked to my surgeon who had been telling me for a long time that I needed to process all of my stuff or something like this would happen. But, you know, I know better than anybody. Um, I'm an EMT. I'm pretty much a doctor. I know, I right? Get that. I get mean, Yeah. <laughs> you should listen to me. This is, no, I, I know everything. So I called my surgeon and kind of explained what was going on. And um, he encouraged me to go to inpatient treatment. And I said, no. I, I inpatient really, treatment for what? For alcohol. Okay. Um, and at this point, I wasn't ready for that. That wasn't, I didn't really think that I was an alcoholic because I still had a job and I still, you know, mm -hmm. had a car in my own place and I wasn't on the side of the road or under a bridge or, you know, I, I had a family that loved me and all of these things that I thought meant I had my life under control. So, um, I started seeing a therapist psychologist. She would be offended if I called her a therapist. She worked really hard for that PhD. <laughs> um, so she asked me on my first visit, she asked if I had ADHD and I said, no, I, I'm 28 years old. No, I don't have ADHD. And she's like, well, I'd, I'd really like to get you tested. I'm like, no, I don't have that. I, this isn't a problem for me. So she bribed me with knowing my IQ score if I did the testing because I wanted, you know, that, mm -hmm. that's a number that well, I can tell. Why did she immediately jump to ADHD? Because I think I was kind of all over the place. <laughs> uh, no, I think you might. Let's just try and get you tested. No, no, I'm going to. I'm going to. Yeah. Side note. Side note. Uh, story over here. Squirrel. Um, right. So she got me. I went ahead and did my testing with her and turns out, um, I failed the ADHD part miserably, do <laughs> definitely have ADHD. And she, she called me an alcoholic cause she's kind of a no BS kind of person. Mm. And which is what EMS people need. Oh yeah. I, cause you know, I know everything mm. and I know how to, <laughs> I know how to convince you. I know everything too. So she called me out and said I was an alcoholic. So I took that as a challenge not an alcoholic. So I only drank six drinks that night instead of however many I wanted mm -hmm. to. So at so, that point, how many were you drinking tonight? Um, probably, probably a 12 pack, 12, like 12 drinks. I mean, if I went out for mixed drinks or something, it like would 12, be, like 5% beers. Yeah. Okay. Like, I mean, your standard healthcare, 12, you know, <laughs> 12 alcoholic beverages, which is like X amount of ounces of wine. I never drank wine. That the low point. Ugh. Um, <laughs> 
X amount of like, and that was when all like those like spiked seltzer, white claw mm. things came out. Those were my jam <laughs> all of the summer of 2019. Cause you know, they're low carb, so they're mm. totally fine. Cause I was keto and an alcoholic mm. just makes sense. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, she's like, I don't really know many people that uh, go home and drink to prove they're not an alcoholic Mm. and kind of realizing that that was that's insanity. Like, you know, I I was in this like circle of let me prove to you that I am not something that you think I am by doing the activity that you're mm. in, like it, yeah. it makes sense when I'm sober, but yeah. when I wasn't sober, it was like, ha ha, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I'm not it. Okay. Uh, All right. Interesting. So that was, um, September of 2019, uh, by October, I just kind of spiraled into my friends and family knew that I was trying to not drink. So I was hiding it. Mm. And at the point that I was hiding it, that's where I kind of got into the unmanageability aspect of my life. Um, because I'm trying to trying to function and trying to hang out with people and also trying to drink at the same time. Were and you still living by yourself? I was. Um, mm, that's tough. Well, I had a roommate, but I never saw her. She yeah. also worked in EMS. Yeah. So, I mean, between her shifts Mm. and my shifts, we really never saw each other except when the rent was due. And then it was a love note on the counter. Hey, I sent this to you. Um, (laughs) but yes, I was, I was trying to hide how much I was drinking and it, I finally just admitted that I had a problem that was bigger than I could fix. And it's pretty easy to get to that point. I mean, like as it's, far as to, to get to that low point, because, because yes. I was drinking like a lot too, and I didn't even realize it. Right. I was telling my wife, like, I, she, well, she knows this cause she was there, but, uh, I think at my worst, when I was really struggling through some things at, uh, at work, it was like a bottle of whiskey a weekend just yeah. by myself. Yeah. You know, and you don't think anything about it because, well, you know, I'm, I'm this and I'm that, and yeah. I'm not, I'm not yeah. the ideal but it feels so, like you're numbing all the, like the, the pain. Right. See, and that's, you know? and a lot of my issue was <clears throat> I, um, I was drinking to get my brain to shut off. Yeah. Cause and you didn't want to think about all this stuff. Cause I didn't want to think about anything and I couldn't sleep at night because my brain would go through every single conversation that I had had through the day or week or month or five years ago, you know, and that has a lot to do with my ADHD. And it's almost like whenever the, the more you, uh, like if you pour water into a, a big Mason jar, you know, say a bad situation happens in your life, you know, that's kind of like water into a Mason jar. Right. It fills it up a little bit. And if you don't process that, it's going to keep building. And so, okay, you get a divorce, put more water in. Right. Okay. Now I'm a primary medic, dump a whole lot. More. Okay. Now it's a bad call. Now it's spilling over right. and now you've lost everything. Right. That's kind of how mental health works when you don't process things. Of course. And that's how I felt. And And I ended up deciding I was going to rehab and told my psychologist and told my surgeon and they kind of worked out a game plan for what would be the best place for me to go. And I called and asked, you know, what are the, what are the details here? How long am I going to be gone? Cause I I mean, I can do some FMLA leave for a little while, but I got to get back to work. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. just couple weeks, right? They're like, well, we, we want you to commit to 30 days. Okay. I can do that. I ended up being there for three months and, uh, I was there wow. from 
the middle of October of 2019 until the first week of January. And well, walk me through that. Walk me through that experience and that process. What they do. Um, like imagine if somebody else is having, they maybe they're listening to this and they kind of have, okay, I might have a drinking problem too. Kind of explain what happens. So I went to one AA meeting before I went to, um, went to rehab and I was like, this program isn't really for me. Well, it turns out when you go to rehab, it is very AA based. Mm. Uh, they don't tell you that on the phone or else I probably would not have volunteered to go, but it really ended up being the best thing for me. Um, the, the, what, what we ended up doing, we had a schedule, like a very Are, are set, you just living there? Yes. Okay. You live, well, I lived there. You can do outpatient, like intensive outpatient mm-hmm. stuff. It was just easier for me to do inpatient because my insurance at the time covered it. Is it like a hotel or a hospital? This was, no, this was like a resort. I, we each had a queen size bed. Um, you had a roommate, two queen size beds in a room. It looked like a hotel, a uh, bathroom. They take away all alcohol containing products, which... Um, which p- people don't really realize that's pretty easy to get. Like hand sanitizer is pretty common to get. Yeah. So, alcohol. Uh, I am hiding the fact that I'm drinking all day from my family before they take me to rehab. And, uh, I'm not doing a very good job of hiding it at this point, but we spent all morning getting ready and then they took me in the evening. Well, we stopped at Bucky's cause it was, uh, close to a Bucky's and, uh, they wouldn't, they'd already taken my ID away from me. So I bought a little bottle of Listerine for my last drink. Mm. And if that doesn't scream unmanageability, I don't know what does, but I knew that it was alcohol and you know, mm-hmm. it was my last drink. They wouldn't let me buy anything else. So yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, alcohol, hand sanitizer, body sprays, all kinds of things. Um, and you think you're a genius when you do it and then you get to rehab and realize, Oh, We've all done these things. Mm. Um, Isn't that interesting? Whenever you kind of figure out you're not alone, it does kind of help some things. Yes, it does. And the stories, the stories that everybody shared and while every person, I I wasn't in just a strictly alcohol rehab. I had, you know, substance abuse. It was just substance abuse Mm -hmm. as a whole. And, uh, I had various different friends in the, like in, in rehab with me that, um, you know, use different drugs of choice, but our brains all functioned the same. Mm. And, you know, just, we spent all day in classes. Um, learning what? Learning about why you do what you do. Um, how to deal with stress, how to develop coping skills. Like, Mm. um, you, you do have one-on-one therapy with your case manager. Uh, they have various different, you know, if, if you have a history of other kinds of abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence, they have different classes based on what you really need to focus yeah. on your traumas. What were some of the techniques that you learned um, for managing stress and coping and all that stuff? The first thing I learned was asking for help doesn't really make you weak, um, especially since if somebody asked me for help, I wouldn't think anything of it. So why would someone who I'm asking, Hey, can you help me with this? Why would they think any different? That's huge. Right. Cause I struggle with that too. I don't, I want to be completely self-sufficient. I don't want, Oh, I don't, I don't want anybody to know that I'm, you know, not exactly. And a lot of that had to do with growing up 
I grew up in Abilene. My parents owned Christian radio stations in Abilene, and they were very um, prominent in the community. Mm-hmm. And we had very affluent family friends. And, you know, it just was kind of like there was a magnifying glass on me the entire time I was growing up. So I didn't want, I didn't want anyone to think that I was a failure or I didn't want anyone to think that I wasn't as good as I appeared to be. And, you know, here we are divorced and an alcoholic. Like how much worse could we get? Why do you think people get, because I've gotten that way too. Like in your opinion, being there and kind of seeing the extremes of both sides here, why do you think humans get to that point? Like, why did you want to keep up this facade that everything's okay, that you have it all together? So, um, I, unvoiced expectations or assumed expectations lead to disappointment. So whether you have an expectation for another person and you don't tell them that this is your expectation, Mm -hmm. they're automatically going to let you down and you haven't given them a chance to even you know, meet that expectation. Or maybe even sometimes you don't realize right. you're even putting that expectation on them. Right. And un- oh, that's big. like, and, um, you know, expectations that you, you assume like, oh, well, my dad is going to be super disappointed or my boss is going to be really upset if I don't pick up the shift or mm. I'm very much a people pleaser. And I had to learn how to say no. And they talk a lot about codependency and I'm not a psychologist. I only know what I know from spending three months with a lot of intensive therapy. Um, but people pleasing is once again, expectations. Like what what do you think leads to that whole codependent expectation trying to please people and you with me? Um, I find that I am significantly more on the people pleasing side when my life is more unmanageable behind the curtain. So, Hmm. I will put up more of a front when I don't have it all together and I don't want anyone to see it. So I'll help out and do whatever. And yes, here, let me, you know, pick up your kid from school. And I just spread myself too thin, which it's a circle because you spread yourself too thin and then you end up coping with, or me at least, I ended up coping with alcohol and it just, it turned into a cycle and kind of realizing what the cycle was for me personally and, you know, doing some intensive family therapy with my family and realizing that my dad's going to be proud of me regardless, mm. you know, um, how did, how did that come about in your heart? Well, I was worried he was going to be disappointed because, you know, dad, I'm very much a daddy's girl. Uh, in fact, I talked to my dad while I was sitting here waiting for Caleb <laughs> to start everything. Um, I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty cool. Honestly, yeah, I called him on my way over and, you know, he owns radio stations. And I'm like, dad, I'm going to have to talk to, to somebody that isn't you. I don't, I'm nervous. And he's like, you've been on the radio since you were eight. I was like, I know, but I'm nervous. <laughs> so, um, I, I never wanted to do anything that would disappoint him. Um, you know, here I am divorced already and we didn't drink. We, we grew up Southern Baptist. We don't do those things. Uh, and if we do, we sure don't talk about it. Yeah. The, yeah. That's a whole nother issue. Whole nother issue. Yeah. We'll get into that on a different day. 
Um, it feels like every podcast I come across these things where we like you could almost devote an entire season of podcast just to one topic. Right. And that's one of those. Yes. Uh, and actually, that's a legitimate thing is religious trauma, um, which okay. I found very interesting. Talk I was, about that. I was very churched growing up and, you know, right and wrong and do this and don't do that. And, you know, the rules are pretty clearly laid out. And I knew that I was breaking so-called rules mm -hmm. that I like was brought up with. And, um, I was almost ashamed and I didn't want to ask for help because that just shines a light on the worse. fact. Yeah, right. So, um, like you can't please cause Southern Baptist is God so yes. you, because you're, you're so far into quote unquote sin. You feel like right. God can't well, ever love you and the people around you can't love you. Right. And just, you know, hearing mixed messages from various different, I, I feel like if religion is what street you want to go down, there's a church for everybody. Um, or not, if you, that's not a path that you want to go down. Um, but I am not really the best candidate for a super Southern Baptist doctrine anymore. And I was growing up, that was fine. Mm -hmm. But as I have gotten older and basically lived life, um, that's not where I fit in and mm -hmm. that's okay. And just, that was another coping skill too, is kind of figuring out, trying to not force myself into a group where I'm not going to fit in regardless. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty messed up. That's not what. Uh, that's the, right. You know, but that's 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 a hey, whole okay, other. Okay. We, we won't go there. So um, no, I I called my dad and told him I was having issues with the alcohol. About a month or two before I decided to finally go to rehab, and he got really upset with me because mm. he didn't know. He I did a very good job of hiding it um, from my parents, especially. How was it trying to build that courage? And what made you finally call him? Because I knew I was going to have to take some time off of work and really just, it was, I wanted, I wanted love and support and I, I wanted my parents to just tell me I was going to be okay. But this was a topic that my dad had never broached before. We don't have a whole, like my parents don't drink at all. Um, my, I mean, like now that we've gone through therapy and stuff, my dad has other issues that align with my issues. Um, you know, he probably has ADHD and some other stuff, but, uh, he may not, he's never been diagnosed. Don't tell him I said that, <laughs> but, um, you know, my dad and I are very similar personality wise. So, um, he kind of argued back and forth with me and was really, kind of said some hurtful things. And, um, I called one of his friends who was a pastor in town where he worked or where he, they live. Um, and dad had radio station in Graham and I called pastor friend and said, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. And I don't know how to talk to my dad on, um, a level that isn't emotionally charged. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to explain this to him without, getting defensive and him getting defensive. So can you talk to him? Cause you might know more about this than I do. And I didn't really know this guy at all. I talked to him one time because of kind of our paths crossed indirectly mm -hmm. through EMS and, uh, long story short, it probably was the best phone call I could have made. 
And I found out why after I went to rehab is because his pastor friend's son also struggles with addiction mm. and also went to rehab and is also wow. right. Been Small in the world, been in the same, he's been in the same boat that my dad was in and you know, his kid has been in the same boat that I'm in. So hmm. it ended up, you know, working out and, uh, Family therapy was tons of fun talking about growing up. And, you know, these are all the things that I thought were expected of me. And my parents were like, we never said that. And I was like, well, no, but you talked about so-and-so's kid who was, you know, doing this and -and so-and-so's kids doing this. And, you know, we don't do those things. And here I am doing those things. And it's, you just have to be careful. Like your, your kids are listening to what you're saying. And while you mean well you know, you, you mean well, and you want your kids to learn from other people's experiences. Sometimes they're, yeah, it it was just one of those, I had this idea of what they expected from me and it wasn't necessarily what their expectations were at all. So the family counseling, how far was that into your three month of, uh, um, the second month, okay. Uh, the second and third month, kind of right before you're getting ready to go back out into the real world. Um, so kind of rewind a little bit. So month one, you would th- you learn you a lot really, of coping stress yes. techniques. And you learn to not, I mean, the first month, first couple of weeks, you got, you had no phone calls for the first four days and then you had five minute phone calls hmm. and then you got 10 minute phone calls. How were those first four days? I cried the entire first night, mostly cause I was still intoxicated. Um, and then I realized I had a lot of work to do because I couldn't cry sober. It took me 31 days to cry sober. And that's part of, you know, part of being a female in a male dominant field, flying EMS, whatever. Um, I was always afraid that if I cried or had feelings that people would think I was a girl and couldn't handle the job. So I just kind of shut down having feelings and processing what I was dealing with and used alcohol as my coping skill or my self-medication, if that makes sense. So it, it, and that's not an uncommon thing. I mean, there are, we used to, especially those of us that were in healthcare that were in, um, rehab at the same time. Um, there were, we had what was called a professionals group. I was like, you obviously don't know me very well because I am hardly a professional. Um, basically if you had a professional license, I was like, I guess you can call it that, but whatever. Um, yeah, but interesting nurses, doctors. So were you DTing the whole time? Uh, no, I, in fact, when I went to, I, I only had, um, withdrawal for a few days in August and then I wasn't drinking enough trying to hide it and everything that so it kind of helped a little bit going back into rehab. Well, when I went into rehab, I didn't, I didn't really withdraw. I was hungover, but I went to rehab because I was afraid I was going to end up withdrawing and mm. I didn't want to do it again. And I didn't have any medication. The first time I withdrew, I did it on a friend's couch cause you know, I had things to do and mm. stuff to get done. And, um, wow. He was a trained medical professional, so totally knew if I started having problems to call an ambulance because you can't do anything at home, you know. um, So week one's pretty much isolation. Well, you're, you're with other people. Yeah. You're, you're you're with the general population. But you're being removed from From your your home life. Yeah. Week two, what happens? Uh, you get a little more privileges to call and you can have visitation. You learn more de-stressing techniques. You learn that you're not alone. Right. And. 
I thought I was, they call it terminally unique. Um, and they call it terminally unique because you think you're so special, your addiction or substance abuse will kill you. Um, Hmm. because I was a different alcoholic. Explain that. I mean, I wasn't using meth behind a gas station. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't waking up in the morning and, but I was like, you know, I, I am no different than any other addict or alcoholic, regardless of what their life looks like. Hmm. Um, and it took a really long time for me to realize that I am, I thought I was better than everybody. I was just going to breeze through rehab. I had a job to go back to. I had family that loved me and, you know, all of these things. And I didn't burn any bridges and I decided to be here on my own. So why, why was the whole being unique such a big deal? Why is that something, something they kind of attack and try and break down? Because when you think you're special, you are completely missing the point of you are an alcoholic or you are an addict and you are no, you are no better than anyone else. You just haven't gone, like you haven't gotten to the point that they have. And it could easily, I mean, if I start drinking again, I could easily end up dead. You know, there, there was a thing that I saw online and it was like, well, you know, do you want to have a drink with dinner tonight? Well, yeah, I want to have a drink with dinner tonight, but I have plans at Christmas. Because one is too many, but a thousand is never enough. And it's, it's super true. Like one, I mean, you think you got it. And so I get out of rehab and, um, I took a month or two off of work and ended up getting a new job. I kind of, before we get into that, okay, 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 I want to know about more about kind of your process in rehab because it's super interesting. Did did they like talk about like some of the brain science behind it? Yes, they did. Um, a lot of people in rehab have undiagnosed mental health issues, um, depression, anxiety, ADHD. Um, which is kind of interesting because, um, there's uh there was a TED talk I was listening. I you might, you may have heard it about, uh, addiction and uh, I forgot what country it was like Portugal or, Gosh, I don't remember what uh, country it was, but they pretty much got rid of all laws uh, pertaining to addiction and replaced them with social groups. Hmm. And by the end of the TED Talk, he said the opposite of addiction is connection, which kind of makes sense from what you're telling me. Right. You know, a lot of these mental health problems that many people have, um, I've I've got some as well. Um, they're kind of originating, correlating with some of your connection with people, the relationships right. that you have, which kind of makes sense too, with some, maybe the codependency you had with well, your husband yes, and that was severed. So and it kind of made issue. That's an interesting point because they, I have never felt more a part of a group than I did in rehab. Mm. I never felt like I fit in more towards the end of rehab. Once I kind of got past the point of, and I don't even... I'll, I'll just be honest. I judged the people I was in rehab with. Like I got pissed that, sorry, can I say pissed? I've said worse. Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, I got pissed that I didn't get voted mayor of rehab. (laughs) Legitimately had to spend an hour of my one-on-one counseling time, um, talking about how upset I was that I didn't get voted the mayor of rehab. Huh? Interesting. I know. Right. And like, Hmm. My, my therapist was like, uh, Kimber- Kimberly, are you actually going to put that you were the mayor of rehab on a resume? Like, <laughs> is that, is like in the long, I'm a real important person. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted everybody to see me as hmm. like, 
the best. I wanted to be the best at rehab. I wanted to be the best alcoholic. I wanted to be number one. And that's super interesting. It took a, it took a really good chunk of time, you know, in active therapy, multiple hours a day, like including classwork, because that's kind of a type of group therapy is like, even the classes that we take, we still have to sit and reflect and talk. So it, it took a good month and a half or two before I finally realized that I, uh, I wasn't as different as I thought I was. Hmm. And, um, you know, they tell you that you talk about all the things that you do when you're active in addiction or, you know, alcoholism, stealing money, manipulating, lying, covering things up, doing this, doing that. And you just don't see it amongst your peers that you're in rehab with because you're all sober. Oh, I can't imagine you would ever do such a thing. Like, I can't imagine, like, knowing you in this capacity. And then they tell you that your friends are going to die. Your friends in rehab, statistically, y'all aren't all going to make it. Hmm. And it finally kind of hit close to home. I've lost two that I know, three, three that I know of so far. Wow. Since? Since, yeah, that I was in rehab with. When, and, and when did you get out of rehab officially? January. So January, so wow, just eight months ago? Yeah. So. Wow. Um, Have you been able to process some of that in a good way? Yes. After I processed it in a bad way. Yeah. So I went, uh, I went and got a new job after I got out of rehab and I, I plugged myself into, um, an AA group, pretty, um, hardcore for about two months. How'd you feel after those three months of rehab? I still didn't get it. So like you walked out, I walked out, you're like, I'm done. I'm done. I got this, you know, everything's going to be great. Did you feel like you kicked it completely? Uh, I did. And in fact, um, and my parents not knowing a whole lot about recovery and how it's a relapse is often a process of recovery. Uh, they got my first sobriety date, um, engraved on the back of a charm from James Avery from my charm bracelet. So, you know, that was going to be, that was the day. October 14th of 2019 was the day. And, uh, it wasn't. So I, I knew I didn't trust myself a whole lot, but I couldn't go to like a sober living. They, they recommend you go to sober living, which is kind of like reintroduction into the world. But at this point, I still thought I was going back to work, right? Um, where I already had a job. I just took some time off and, uh, decided that that probably wasn't the best idea. Uh, lived with some friends for a while and then decided that I was going to apply for something that was a little less stressful. So like a hospital job, you know, it still pays well. Benefits are good. Kind of back into healthcare because I don't know anything different at this point. And um, that's tough. I was still I was going to meetings pretty regularly. And then I started my job at the end of February. And by the end of March, COVID was here. And by April, um, all in-person meetings were canceled and for a, yeah, for AA. And oh, it's, wow. that's a big part of what helps me. Um, yeah, why is that so successful? Is it the community, the connection? I think it's a lot of the connection. And for me, it helps me remember that I am no different. You're not alone. I'm well, I'm not, al- I'm not alone and I'm not any different because you, the alcoholic or addict's brain, you're constantly struggling with the addict part of you telling you that, well, you got it this time. It, 
well, now that you have all of these things under control, you can totally go out and have a drink. Like, oh, you can, you can, you can go out and drink. It's not that big of a deal. Like one or two isn't a, you got this. It's Mm. fine. Uh, but going to meetings and hearing other people's stories reminds you that, yeah, everybody thinks they got it. Everybody Mm. thinks that they're okay with it. And how do you get past that? Um, staying honest with yourself. And I enjoy hanging out with people that kind of know my background and that I'm comfortable with, you know, at this point I can hang out with people that, um, drink and it's not that big of a deal. I've gone to sporting events and, you know, other people are drinking and it's not that big of a deal. Um, but staring longingly at the, you know, liquor store door is probably not a good place for me to be. Uh. Yeah, they, they say if you have a purpose for being there, you're usually okay. But if you don't really have a purpose and you're just testing your luck, huh. probably not a good idea. That's interesting. Uh, the holiday cheer end cap at HEB has been calling me lately, but mm. I, I'm joking. Kind of, but not really. Um, <laughs> well, tell me the truth. What, ho- you are holiday cheer was my, my favorite uh, festive beverage. Does it make you want to go back even now as you talk about some of these beverages? And that's no. kind of, that's a pointed question. No. I know this is still fairly recent. I, I well, know. and what ended up happening, um, I, I ended up drinking again. Um, like April-ish? No, uh, June, July-ish. And the friends that I was staying with, like, one condition was, you know, you don't drink. And that was kind of, they kicked me out and I had to quit my job and go with my parents and, um start over from the Mm. beginning. And at this point, here I am no different than anyone else because I don't have a job and I don't have a place to live. I mean, my parents' house in Graham wasn't really the most comfortable, uh, exciting place for me to be. And, uh, I love my parents, but you know, they've never been hung over. That's not really a thing. They don't drink. My mom would leave half a margarita on the table and I would finish it for her because like, how can you buy a margarita and leave half of it on the table? Uh, that's, that could be problematic guys. If you have a hard time leaving half a margarita on the table, mm. maybe talk to somebody. It's one of those things. And it's like with food. Some people have a problem with food. Like, oh my gosh, you just threw away half of your plate. Like, <laughs> Why would you do such a thing? Like, take it home, save it, eat it. Mm. You know, everybody has their thing. Their thing. And um, so my last mom got me. Was July, you said? July, August? Kind of. We're getting there. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. It's, okay. it's, it's, been a, it's been a rough little go. So uh, July, I ended up back with my parents. And the morning after, they had to come and pick me up from my poor friend's Cause I said lots of not nice words being intoxicated and mm. told my parents I wanted to go to jail at the Weatherford QT cause they weren't taking me back to rehab. They were taking me back to their house. And did, so you wanted to go to back to rehab at I that was, point? I was scared because I didn't know what was going to happen. If that makes sense. I knew rehab was a safe place. Hmm. I knew that like, I would be just fine there and it didn't matter that I didn't have a job and this and that and the other. I wouldn't, life wouldn't be hard if I went back to rehab. Hmm. It's a different kind of hard, but it's not, 
It's not hard. You have your own queen size bed and your home. It's kind of, you have kind of friends and right. It's comfortable. It's super comfortable. After you've been there for a while, you know, everybody who works there. Mm-hmm. I mean, and quite frankly, there are lots of people who leave and come back and leave and come back. And, you know, I'm sure I'd still have friends there yeah. that had come back or, you know, I'd make new friends. And my parents were taking me back to Graham. We ended up getting home sometime after midnight, um, and they lovingly found me a meeting early, early in the morning, an AA meeting in Weatherford, which is about an hour away from Graham, and decided to wake me up at six o'clock in the morning to take me to breakfast and then my AA meeting. Yeah. (laughs) Very nice of them. And they were really, like, really trying to do it. Were you hungover? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was so sick. The entire day I was sick. And they're like, well, what can we do to make it better? And I was like, this is just part of the process. Like, the only thing that makes a hangover better is to drink more. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how you make it go away the fastest. And, uh, yeah, I was definitely hungover. And I went to a meeting and I just lost it. I cried all through the meeting. Everybody knew why I was there and nobody... Nobody judged me. Like I was in a group. These people didn't know me. I've never been to a meeting at this location before ever. Like, but they knew where I was and they loved on me. And how did they love on you? I mean, it was COVID and I still got hugs, (laughs) you know, like I, they, they all shared parts of their story that, um, made me feel like I fit in with them Hmm. and they understood and they'd all been there with the same place that I've been, just broken. And um, I had, I ended up finding a job, kind of like a part-time, making some relatively decent money. My parents didn't want me to stay in Graham if that's not where I wanted to be. So I really wanted to be back home. And I stay home, Johnson County is home for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was living in Cleburne before. Now I live in Burleson. Um, and you know, my family friends were in Cleburne that I was staying with. So, uh, I got a job at a grocery store, found a place to rent with a girl on Facebook who's in, you know, nursing school, didn't know her, could have been sketchy and it wasn't. (laughs) And her stepdad was actually in the fire service. And so so we knew a lot of the same. Yes. Um, so like we knew a lot of the same people, um, worked out great. And I don't know exactly what happened. I think I didn't get as many hours at work and I wasn't able to make things like financially. If I, if I was getting the amount of hours that I was when I first got hired, it was at a grocery store. Uh, and you know, financially, things were okay. And then all of a sudden my hours started getting fewer and fewer and financially I couldn't make things work. Mm. And rather than asking for help, the smart addict alcoholic me decides that drinking is the answer to all of my problems. And, uh, my, my mom asked, she's like, so, uh, we ended up This was late August, early September. We ended up going to a baby shower for my brother and his wife. And uh, my mom brought me back up to 
Burleson and she's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've been drinking. Um, and at that point I hadn't for the rest of the weekend. Um, and she's like, what can I do to help you? And I was like, well, I don't have, you know, she, she really wanted to know what my triggers were. And I was like, I don't have an, like, I can't pay my rent. I can't do this. And I don't have money and I don't know how to ask for help. And she's like, I can't take the part of you that's an alcoholic away, but I can take away the part that you're worried about financially. Like we can help you. Hmm. And, um, she kind of got real with me. So my official new sobriety date is September 11th of this year. So it's been a little over two months. That's awesome. Um, First off, congrats. Thank you. And, uh, in that time I got a new job. Yeah, tell me, tell me about that. That's now that we've talked about all of my other stuff that I had to unpack. Um, <laughs> no, so before we get into even okay. what you're, what you're, what you're, um, your current job, what you just told me was amazing. That was a story of still is. It's not past. It still is a story of just amazingness of perseverance. Um, well, you're doing you. you're doing well. I want to tell you that right now. Like, this is a very hard thing. I've, I don't really know, um, a whole lot of alcoholics other than the patients that I used to take care of. Well, and that was another, uh, our definition of alcoholics and addicts that would come into the hospital are a lot different than, you know, what you think I am. I mean, I don't even know. I don't really care at this point. You're just an amazing person who's who's really pushing. Um, and it, it, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to put anything on you for the future, but what I know now from um, the very little I did know about you prior to the podcast, and now I know a whole lot more about you, is uh, you're 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 in the thick of it right now. Um, you're kind of in the trenches, yeah, you know. Yeah. You're trying to rebuild your life from the ground up. I, right. And, and that's huge. It's hard, and nobody nobody really talks about how hard it is to just be a human. And yeah. Things don't go as planned. Nobody wants to talk about the crap. No, no. And nobody sure as hell doesn't want to come on this podcast and tell their life, most intense life story that is still happening now, like their weakest point that nobody's going to broadcast out to the world, but you are here right now. Well, I didn't really intend on it, but I guess it happened and I'm I was like, I was like, I, I knew you were going through some stuff. I don't really know what. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's okay. It's, it's. It's funny because I was talking to Cherie, mm-hmm. which, you know, she comes up, what, tomorrow? Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was talking to Cherie about, um, I was like, man, I'm really nervous. And what happens if something comes up and I don't want to talk about it? And, you know, I was talking to my dad about that on the way over. And I wasn't really anticipating. It wasn't a secret because I was gone for three months. So I kind of had to, like, fess up and say this is where I've been. Um the after like dealing with sobriety after rehab, that's kind of not really been a secret to those in my close circle, but it was less advertised that, you know, I've been struggling and a lot of people have been struggling. And I think that, you know, maybe me not being, they they say shame is one of the big things that, you know, alcoholic and alcoholics and addicts have trouble coping with and realizing that like, you don't have a reason to feel ashamed. Like guilt is, you know, I did something bad and shame is I am bad. 
And there's a completely different, yeah, you, you did something that wasn't great, but that doesn't mean you're a horrible person. And maybe, you know, me telling my story and somebody out there hears something. Yeah. This isn't just like, oh, my testimony. No, No, this this is like like currently. Today. Today. Yeah. Like that's super interesting because there's, there's always this like a wall between what has been done and what is currently happening that people don't really want to talk about what's currently happening in their life. And that's something I struggle with. Even currently today, there's a lot of things that I'm going through that I don't want to share. Like I'm not, I'm not brave enough yet. Right. To be honest, like I, I have things that I'm going through right now within our family that I don't want to share. Yeah. I'm not, cause I'm not brave enough. I'm not to where you're at right now. Right. Um, and that's kind of like, I, I want to get to that point. Like I want to be strong enough in my weakness. Right. To be able to, to share it. To be able it. to share it. And you know, sometimes somebody else will say something or I'll say something and I'll get a response back or I'll hear something from someone else. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you don't know how much I needed to hear that today. Mm-hmm. Or, Oh, well, when you put it like that, well, my problem, huh? My problem isn't really that big of a problem today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why going to meetings is so helpful for me mm-hmm. is because I'm going to communicate yeah. with people who are in various different stages of their journey into sobriety and just journey into life and seeing, well, how do you cope with things and how do you, and then realizing that it doesn't matter how sober you are, you still think the same way. Mm. Like the addict part of you is still there. And so that's why it's helpful for me. Um, I'm super encouraged by all the things you just told me. Like that's, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I was not expecting this and that's amazing. Like wow. I'm just in I awe. wasn't either. So we're in <laughs> awe together. Um, well, I mean, honestly, like I, I, I really, I just can't go on. Like this is not normal and okay. we all know this. No, it's not. You know, nobody shares this type nobody of stuff. Nobody sh- No. And that's the biggest deal is I didn't realize how many people were struggling with some of the same issues that I struggle with until I kind of fessed up and said, this is where I've been. And then I got private message after private message. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is had somebody been like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I'm struggling with drinking too. And this is what I'm doing to help. It might have, might, I am might not have prevented me from going to the, like getting to the point that I did. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if the fact that I was dealing with what I was dealing with was normalized, I may mm-hmm. not have ended up in rehab for three months. The stigma behind it. Right. And there's a huge stigma. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just knowing what I saw and knowing what I thought I knew, I wasn't like those people. I wasn't, you know, in quotes, those people, but it, there's such a stigma. And then you realize that other people are struggling with the exact same things that you're struggling with. Well, I mean, like I said, I I was almost there. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's a pretty common, I mean, there are a lot of, I'd always justify it by saying I have a high tolerance. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, I'm yeah. just, I'm, I, I can drink it's a bottle of whiskey and I'm fine. It's yeah. my day off. I can, I, would, yeah. I can drink at eight o'clock in the morning. I worked all night. <clears throat> you know, that's how I can justify drinking at eight o'clock it's in the morning. It's technically 8 p.m. right now for other people. So it's technically my evening in the morning right now. So that's how I can do it. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Um, hmm. So, yeah. No, every excuse in the book I've made. And I think kind of just talking about it makes it less shameful. Mm. And, no, then, this is like, and then people are more willing to get help. What and I see, what I see right now is, is less of a, uh, an arrow to your heart and more of a, uh, badge to your armor. 
Well, thank you. Because that's huge. I appreciate that. Probably the biggest thing that's happened on the podcast so far. This is like from a, even a personal perspective because well, you. you're literally pouring out your heart and that's amazing. And I, I what I'm going to be doing, so what I typically do for every podcast is I'll uh, record it and then whatever the topic is, I'll kind of find different social groups to, to post it or yeah. encourage other people to listen to it. So that's with this podcast, I'm going to try and find some of these groups that maybe there are people who are struggling with this, trying to encourage each other. I'm going to post this podcast in those groups to um, get traffic for my podcast as well, because that's part right. of it. But this is kind of even further now where this podcast could really help a lot of people. Well, thank you. And that's what I hope. Uh, so before we close, I, I would really like to talk about what you're doing now. Okay. You just switched over to what? So I am, um, as of October 1st, which is my birthday, I started my new job on my birthday, which is also the beginning of the new fiscal year. Um, nobody cares about that. <laughs> nobody cares. Not about the physical, but uh, it's when, like the, it's like the drum, drum roll October 1st. Oh, okay. I, care, I mean, we care about your birthday, but no, not the fiscal no, no, year. it's like, it's the drum roll, um, that we can't do. Well, I mean, and we could, we could, but we're not going to. Yeah. Okay. So I started a new job as a forensic death investigator for, uh, Johnson County. Okay. And, uh, I am super happy and I, I've always been trying to find the next highest paying job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or how do I go to nursing school and bridge for the cheapest amount of money <laughs> so I can make enough money to, yep. you know, live and you know, this, that, and the other. Um, I took a huge pay cut to do this and my quality of life. Well, it wasn't a huge pay cut from the grocery store. That was a humbling experience. Um, and I needed it. And I was happy. Like, I was genuinely happy bagging people's groceries and being your curbside shopper. Mm -hmm. um, but I applied for this job. Knew I wasn't going to take it because I had another offer doing something really boring. Um, but they needed a title of paramedic. So that's what I would I would basically be doing physicals all mm -hmm. day um, for really good money with really great benefits and all these things. So I interviewed for this job knowing I wasn't going to take the job. And this isn't a secret. My boss knows. Um, so <laughs> uh, I got kind of interrogated during my interview uh, about why I wanted to do it. And I'm like, I don't know. This is like I, I saw a job opportunity and I applied for it. Like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing. What exactly is the job? Um, but being an EMS, it obviously kind of set me up. It wasn't a surprise of what I was kind of getting myself into. And, uh, I couldn't tell them no when they wanted me to come back to the, you know, office and for round two. Explain what, what that, what the actual title does. So I, um, I basically go out when there's a unattended death or a death at home. Um, and the decedent is not, um, in our County, we go out to just about everything, unless it's a hospice call. Um, if, if the decedent was on hospice for over 24 hours, um, we don't usually go out unless they fell or there was mm. some kind of trauma or foul play suspected. Uh, usually we go out to the hospital if they haven't been at the hospital for more than 24 hours or to the residence or scene of the accident, wherever. Um, and just kind of make sure that, um, 
things are taken care of. You know, if it's, if it's an older person and they have significant history and a primary care doctor, their, their primary care doctor may be willing to sign the death certificate. And then we can just kind of send them on to the funeral home. If it's something that they're a lot younger than, you know, they should be passing Mm -hmm. based on their history or, um, something just isn't quite right or they don't have a primary care doctor and they don't have any history, then um, our job is to uh, take pictures and work with law enforcement. And um, law enforcement is responsible for the scene and I am responsible for the decedent. So I make sure that um, they get uh, transported in an appropriate way, You know, make sure that I uh, cover all my bases with my report. And they we contract with Tarrant County um, medical examiner's office Mm. and they do all of our autopsies and exams. So, uh, if, if we decide that they need to go up to Tarrant County, we make sure that, you know, they get up there safely and, um, you know, you have to deal with the families and Mm. funeral homes and doctors. And it's, it's a lot of medical knowledge and it's a lot of kind of law enforcement forensic side that I didn't under, like, I didn't really have a whole lot of idea of before what's, I got what's into What's like it. the most interesting thing that you've learned so far? Hmm. It's, it's interesting. Probably the most interesting thing that I've learned is that not everybody gets an autopsy. You think if they go up to Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office that that's the first thing that they're going to do when they get there. They probably do... A handful compared to how many people come in mm. um, because so they don't you, have to. Is it, is it foul play that's the typical one for autopsies? Uh, trauma, foul play, or you really just don't know. Like looking, if, if you look at somebody and can't be like, well, I think it was this, hmm. you know. If, you don't have to have a black and white uh, answer for what was the cause of death. Right. If, if you're an older person that's significantly overweight, Probably atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. That's the good, that's the good, uh, coin term. Yeah. Generic, (laughs) like probably had a heart attack (laughs) just like everybody dies from cardiac arrest. Um, so, so if somebody came in and like say their mechanism was hitting on the head, but they have a massive bruise on the chest that would warrant an autopsy. And well, yes. And that's a good point is that they also will do partial autopsies. So, um, if they have, a suspected head injury, well, they might only autopsy the head and then they'll move on to other places if they don't find anything. Mm. But, you know, they don't start, they don't start and do an entire autopsy. Um, like they do in the movies, (laughs) right? Like they do in the movies, um, or on Dr. G medical examiner. That was like one of my favorite shows growing up. Not that that was, (laughs) yeah. So this could actually kind of get, uh, Hard, am I right? Being a death 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 investigator, it could be kind of like back, maybe bringing you back to some it other. Could. And you know, I had that concern um, when I got into this because I was really looking for the least amount of stress possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was a little apprehensive accepting the job offer, but like I said, there were a lot of stars that aligned and stuff that happened that you know made me feel okay with taking the job. Um, mostly cause in my heart, I couldn't say no. And I didn't know why. 
but my job and my role as a death investigator is completely different than as a paramedic. I am no longer there to save the person. I am there to help, you know, the decedent mm-hmm. to get justice for the decedent, get justice for the family, um, closure for the family. And really I get to, I get to work with families and love on family members and help them kind of go through this process. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. And, uh I've never had to do that myself personally, like go through the process of having a loved one pass in an unexpected manner. Um, But the fact that I get to kind of help somebody else, I'm still helping people and I'm still getting to use my skills that I've learned. And my, my very first EMS call as a baby EMT was a suspicious death and my preceptor, um, let me watch the forensics part from beginning to end. That's cool. And I got to see, you know, this is, this is how they secure a scene. And this is, and she was showing it to me from an EMS standpoint, like don't be a bull in a China shop, (laughs) you know, knocking over everything if you don't have to, like, this is why this is important. And so my first call in EMS was very much a forensics call. And, this just kind of has all brought it back together and yeah. I'm really excited to see what the future holds. Um, Cherie with her background, mm-hmm. we have a new like found friendship with each other. <laughs> um, it's kind of, it was one of those things like, Oh, well I see that you're doing this. And she messaged me on Snapchat or something. And I messaged her and now I've been over to her house a couple times to eat and, you know, hung out and done this, that, and the other. In fact, I talked to her today. So, um, I've taken a death investigator course through Teeks and mm. I'm really excited because there's just a lot of knowledge that I get yeah. to kind of dive into. Kind of absorb into again. Yes. As you kind of rebuild your life. Yes. So if connection is the opposite of addiction, what are you doing practically to kind of help with that gaining of connection again? Um, I have a good support system. And, you know, after after the last little hiccup um, in my sobriety back in September, um, I, I've really surrounded myself with people that I can be honest with. And, you know, I... I told Cherie the first time we hung out, I was like, Hey, look, I don't drink. I don't really care if you do, but like, these are some of, this is one of my Mm -hmm. issues. And, you know, I'm just letting you know that like, I'm not going to be your friend that goes out for drinks with you. Yeah. Cause that's not a good place for me yet. I'm not saying it won't ever be like, Mm -hmm. I, I know people that can go out and sit at the bar and drink water and hang out with their friends that want to have drinks. And I, don't know how they do that. Cause I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I tried it a couple of times. It didn't work out for me. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I, I surround myself with a group of friends that, you know, drinking after they get off shift and, you know, doing this, that, and the other, that isn't a normal behavior for them. Um, I had to try to change my friend circle mm-hmm. and who I hung out with and just being honest with myself and honest with the people around me. And when I'm struggling, I know 
you know, I have resources and be super honest. Yeah. Be yeah. honest and say, today has not been a great day. Mm. And if somebody asks how I'm doing and I'm really not doing well, and it's somebody who wants to genuinely know how I'm doing, tell them that I'm not doing well mm. instead of just like, Oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. That's the American way. I, I mean, know. Right. Whenever, how you doing? Oh, good. I mean, it's like the, the charged word that yeah. everybody has. I'm fine. Cause what like, are you going to, what are you going to do whenever somebody says, Oh, I'm, I'm terrible. Oh, well, oh, crap. Uh, now um, where do I go? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of awkward. Now it makes you're it awkward. crying. No, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't ask this. Yeah. yeah. No, I get it. Um, I would really like to shift that culture though. Even with what you're doing now, it's kind of that, that in my opinion, the baby steps of that, where we can actually be somewhat honest, you know, and I grant, I know there are different levels of friendship that are healthy for that. Like that's what's needed, Right. but it would be kind of cool if like with our friends, our social groups, we can be real with each other and we're just not. No, we're not. And I, I joke, like joke. Um, you know, those morbid senses of humor that we in healthcare have. Which you kind of have to. Um, I joke that I, I'm find my way into rehab. You what? I'm, I, I'm find uh, my way into the, re- into rehab. Like I said, yeah. I'm fine so many times that I ended up in rehab and, um, yeah. Cause That's if crazy. I was honest five years ago when all the craziness started six years ago, when, you know, I had my first round of surgery and life didn't go as planned. And, you know, if I would have dealt with those issues, then maybe things would have been different, but no. What kept you going during, you know, as we zoom out and we look at, you know, five, six, seven years ago to today, you know, your life was kind of falling apart from a lot of perspectives. What kind of kept pushing you forward other than alcohol or was it alcohol? It was denial. Denial and alcohol. Was there any hope that you had that was kind of saying, I can do better? Or was it? Um, I think it was pride. It was a, it, it wasn't, I, I have no like glorious one. Oh, one sorry. silver bullet. No, I have, I don't have a, like a, a pretty answer for you. It was denial, um, pride and alcohol. And that's what kept me going instead of therapy and, honestly saying, Hey, I have a problem and I need to work on something. Hmm. Um, and that's the way it should have been. And that's, that's the side that we should normalize is it's okay to talk to somebody who knows more about your brain than you do. Hmm. And it's okay to, you know, ask for help if you need it. And it's okay to say, Hey, I'm struggling. Um, because if I would have done that, it may not have been, May not have been so bad, but would, would you have changed anything over the past five years? No. Okay. I don't, I, and I honestly, I wouldn't want anybody to go through what I've gone through, but I wouldn't change a single experience. Why? At all. Why? Because I have a level of empathy for other people that I wouldn't have been able to have had I not gone through every healthcare experience that I've gone through as a patient, Mm. had I not been able to be a, you know, divorced mid twenties person who's now having to date. That's scary. Um, (laughs) why, why is empathy so important? Because it's one thing to think you understand And it's another thing to actually be able to understand. Like, Hmm. um, I am one of those people 
I don't necessarily inherently think that I'm better than everyone, but I have a really hard time with humility. And had I not gone through the experiences that I've gone through, especially like going through a relapse and struggling to kind of get my stuff together and, you know, get my life together, I would have been kind of on my high horse looking down. Hmm. And I used to tell my friends all the time, well, it's so great to be married at 21 because I'm never going to have to worry about dating again. And, you know, well, yeah, I went to rehab, but I'm going to stay sober forever because I got this. And, you know, oh, yeah, well, I did this, this and this, but I'm I'm still better. And I have realized very, very quickly since, you know, my little hiccup in July that I am no better. Hmm. It's a pretty interesting um, because uh, Naomi Alanis, the lady I had, she's probably a second or third episode. Um, she was the assistant professor, is the assistant professor at TCU, at the new TCU Medical School. And um, she's also the clinical research manager at JPS. And she's the one I like. I got to work with her for like a research study where we did uh, study empathy. We were looking at empathy and burnout within patients, how the perception of empathy is with the doctors. And her big thing right now is... Um, training empathetic doctors in medical school. Yes. Which, uh, for me, it doesn't make any sense, to be honest, until I started connecting some of the dots with what you're saying, like just yes. recently. Like, I get, you know, having empathetic doctors is important, um, but I never realized it was going to be to where you needed to be teaching it as an assistant professor in a medical school, as that's her main role. Right. You know? And it's interesting that you say that. Um, because as a, you know, as an EMT, before I went through all of my stuff, healthcare, like health issues wise, I wasn't a bad EMT. I just wasn't really aware, you know, like, um, if somebody was nauseated or hurting or whatever, I'm like, we're going to be at the next hospital or back mm. at the nursing home or wherever. I mean, it's like 20 minutes mm. or, you know, if until you've been a patient and have had to rely on someone to, um, you know, really take care of your basic human needs that everyone takes for granted on a regular basis, you're not the most empathetic you can be. And I think I, I used to joke that all healthcare providers should be a patient for a day mm. and just be completely bed bound for a day and see how it changes. Yeah how you feel about your patients. And I don't necessarily think that that is necessary. I don't wish that upon everybody, but um, that's a good place to start is teaching empathy and teaching how to interact with people. And, you know. Stand by. Stand by. that thought. Okay. So I think it's, um, I think it is important to teach empathy and just interacting with people on a level of understanding. Um, it's super easy to explain to someone in medical terms, what's going on. It's another thing to explain something in a way that they understand and will be able to, uh, process. And hmm. sometimes the best thing you can do is give someone a warm blanket. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that warm blanket may make that person's day that much better, but you don't think about it. You don't think about the fact that, well, their feet are cold and they don't have socks on. You don't think about the fact that, oh, they need help going to the bathroom. Like, yeah, I'll unhook you from the monitor or whatever, but maybe help them get there. Like just some of the little things mm-hmm. that just, you know, when your server at a restaurant does a really good job because they kind of go above and beyond, mm-hmm. it's almost the same thing in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can bring out their food and, you know, drinks and take their order and make sure it's right. But when you give the kids some crayons and... <laughs> You know, well, that's that's something I've always struggled with, not giving kids crowns, but being empathetic and being like yes. going the extra mile because, you know, OK, you you have a tummy ache and you're crying over here. But somebody just got shot in the head and a kid just got shot in the head, you know, right. so I, I've I've always struggled with that yes. uh, balance. Right. I guess and it's say. easy for us because we see we see that like the zoomed out picture. Mm-hmm. But for each person that's in the ER or calls 911 or needs my help as a death investigator, it's their worst day. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is their worst day. It's every day for us, but this is that person's worst day. It doesn't matter on what scale you think, you know, well, this compared to this person over here isn't so bad. That's what I struggle with. Yes. And no, and I get it because I did too. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up having to be and I apologized the entire time I was a patient. I was like, I'm so sorry. I know someone else. They're like, you are my only patient and you are in ICU. I can assure you, you are not a burden today. But it's the same kind of thought process. Uh, so, Well, Kim, we'll get, I guess we kind of got to wrap it up. It's about an hour and 35 minutes. Oh, my goodness. So. I didn't think I was going to talk enough. No, this is no, this is perfect. Yeah. I know. No, well, I saw, I saw some of your, I've listened to some of the other podcasts and I was like, oh. I don't know if I have enough information or I'm not that interesting of a person. Well, typically when I come into these, I'm not really like saying, okay, here's the 10 questions I have to ask. I kind of just go with the flow. And that seems to be the most, uh, uh, I guess the best way for conversations to happen. Cause it's not really an interview. It's more of a conversation yes. and that's what makes it so much fun. And I'm prom- I'm sure you were worried about it, but I wasn't because well, the flow right. of the conversation, I can always keep a conversation going and I'm always interested in what the person has to say. Yes. You know, cause you have a lot of cool things to say, your story. Um, amazing. Uh, it's going to help. I hope a lot of people. Well, and I'm really excited for you too, because this has been just listening to what some of the other people who you've had on have said and just how real the conversation was and what got you to this point. And it's like the first couple of times, well, um, you know, I, I failed at this or I, I really didn't do well at this. And that's how I ended up to where I am today. That's an important part of your journey is mm-hmm. your failures open different doors. And most of your guests have been really, I'd say all of your guests have been really honest about how they got to where they are. And it's, mm-hmm. it's awesome. And it just kind of brings realism to, you know, every, all of our successes have had a struggle somewhere in the mix. And I always forget, you know, like, how young I am. Cause I, cause we both are. Cause I always think about, okay, I have until, you know, I, I want to retire at 50 so I can start really, you know, chilling out. Um, but like, there's a guy I just interviewed, he's the president of Liga International and that's a, uh, nonprofit organization that flies medical supplies down to Mexico. Okay. And he's been an entire career in law enforcement before that. And now he's a professor in aviation in California. Okay. So he was literally a cop his entire life from like 19, 
20 up until he uh, retired. Right. And then become became uh, an aviation professor because of his passion for aviation and then got promoted to or not promoted, but uh, was became the president of this pretty big company. Right. And so it's like, OK, that, that happened at retirement. Yeah. And I'm here still in my 20s worried about right. tomorrow. Right. Right. Or worried <laughs> that I am too old to do something. Yeah, or I'm or, not going to make it. Yeah. Right. It may be retirement age where I start to actually do the things I'm truly passionate about, which this is something I'm very passionate about, like these type of things, because it brings awareness to what's happening in our community. Right. You know, and there's not a lot of that right now. And this is kind of why the podcast kind of started. At first for me, I was like, man, I just want to talk to people. And right. then it came to, okay, let's, let's start like your, your job and who you, where you are, um, AA, your alcohol, uh, tendencies, the, all these things and how you've come across it and fixed it and, or not even fixed it, are walking through it. Right. Is going to help so many people. Well, you know, I appreciate that's you why having, I love having those type of people on. I, I appreciate you having honest, real people on your, on your podcast. Cause it's, it's, it's fun. Cause it, I'm learning a lot. It, I have too. And just even the people that I thought I knew. Yeah. That, you know, that we've worked with. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I really didn't know that about them at mm-hmm. all. Because nobody's taking the time to sit on ask. Right. And for me, I, I hurt. Like, I'm kicking myself because I'm just now starting to do that. Why did I not do that then? Right. For all the people in my social circles. Well, hey, you have this awesome platform now and you can just bring in new people. On that, that yeah, Exactly. And, you know, get honest, upfront conversation and maybe it'll help somebody else out. Yep. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Kim. Well, thank it was you for truly, having me. Truly an honor. I so. appreciate it. Thanks. All righty. Bye.